this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I graduated the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you so much for listening, for your posts and your suggestions. I see them all and I do sincerely appreciate them. And today's guest actually came from a fascinating LinkedIn post and subsequent discussion. And joining me today is Michelle Hogan from Australia. She is the brand counsel. And with that, we'll dive deep into that. But Michelle, great to see you. And thanks for making the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So your post uh, a while ago was um, about how to make the organization's purpose personally meaningful. And you had tied that into, how did you say it? The one too many great resignation posts, <laughs> right? Yeah. And what really resonated with me about the article was um, just about someone making the organization's purpose uh, personally meaningful. And when I read that, it took me back to a quote from Jim Rohn long time ago, who said, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. And I wanted mm. to start the conversation that way with you. Yeah, well, there, there's a bit of an epidemic these days of people within organisations, and I think they've been told this by a lot of media as well, so it's not their fault, but thinking that somehow the organisation is responsible for their sense of meaning, right, that my job should deliver me a sense of personal meaning and that that's their job to do that. And, and I, take a, I take exception to that. I don't think that's the organization's job. I, I certainly think the organization has a responsibility to, uh, to build an environment where people can feel that what they do matters, absolutely, um, where they can feel that what they do is connected and part of something, whatever that something is. I don't judge, I don't lay a virtue and judgment on what that should be because the guy's making the widgets, right? They're not saving the world, but you can find a lot of meaning in contributing to making a really great widget that, that does its job and lasts well and that people want to buy and that somehow improves something else. And, and that gets lost in the conversation, I think, where, and people sort of fall back, I think people fall back to this idea that absent having that sense of connection, you know, the old FedEx story. Um, well, people actually call it the NASA story about the janitor, right? He's asked, you know, what are you doing? He says, I'm helping put a man on the moon or the FedEx story, right? I'm making sure packages go out overnight. And I like the FedEx version because it ties it back really clearly to what this means is the janitor says, because if I don't clean the rubbish from the dock, the trucks can't come in. If the trucks can't come in, we can't load them. If we can't load them, they can't go out and deliver packages. Now, there's a guy who understands and finds meaning in his work because it's part of something that's bigger than what he does, which is clean up the rubbish. And that's the gap. I think if organisations are responsible for anything and 
And part of what's driving a lot of people to leave organizations is that gap. Like I'm slaving away here every day. I'm doing all this stuff. A lot of it's 90% boring. Well, that's everybody's job. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Just get over it now because every job is part boring and mundane and frustrating and that's not going anywhere. But if you're doing that without any sense at all that there's something else out there, there's something else that that's part of, yeah, I'm going to get frustrated and I'm probably going to leave. But flipping that to the organisation has to deliver me some deep sense of personal meaning so my life feels worthy, no, 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 that's on you. Well, and I think that would be a a rare handful of companies that would do that as part of their mission. Because you talk about FedEx or NASA or the widget company. And I think unless uh, somebody worked for uh, a nonprofit that was out there doing that, that was perhaps uh, planting trees or growing food or things like that, your your mission is going to be somewhat abstract and it's not going to be so altruistic. And the other thing I liked about your stories is that there was no uh, inflation of the self-importance of those roles for those people. It was, they, they, they found something that they tied themselves to a bigger purpose, but without uh, puffing out their chest or (laughs) posting selfies on Instagram about it. (laughs) I mean, and, and and most organizations sit somewhere between making money and world peace in terms of their mission, right? That's, you know, there's, we, we sit there and we think that's part of the, the purpose virtue stuff that's going on, right? Purpose has to be virtuous now. It has to be this signaling thing to the world of, that you stand for something that's important and great and all that. And I, and I really take exception to that because not everybody's purpose can be like that, nor it should be, as long as it's meaning, as long as it has meaning and can inspire in, the people inside the organisation, that's what it's there for. I don't, I don't know when, you know, purpose becomes conflated with marketing a lot these days. Oh, and I like so that. I, they just, you know, it becomes this marketing message instead of, like, what is our deeply held purpose? When I work with orgs, quite often they'll say, you know, what do you think of our purpose? I said, it doesn't matter what I think of it. What do you think of it? Because that's what's important. It's, it's not there for anybody else. It's there for the people inside the organisation, but somehow it's become this, like, virtue signalling device for organisation's goodness. <laughs> I really hope it stops being that really soon. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I saw this, uh, I think I had applied to this company or I was looking at their service and I honestly can't remember uh, who it was, but as part of their splash screen video background, they were showing the, uh, for the listeners, I'm using air quotes here, culture. (laughs) And they were in a room and like jumping up and down. And then they had this camera shot where it went through, I'm guessing it was the employees doing one of these little tent things, like little soccer kids do. And I was thinking, 
that would be one of my questions on the job is like, do I please not have to do that if I work here? <laughs> I would much rather have all the tools that I need to get the job done and feel supported than running through um, the spanking machine. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, you know, starting from point one, nobody goes to work every day wanting to do a shit job and feel bad about what they do. No one. Well, okay. 1% of psychopaths, but let's leave them <laughs> to the side, right? Most people go to work every day wanting to do a good job and feeling like that, in some small way, they have made a contribution to something, whatever that something is. And that's the job of the org, is to help people see that connection, understand that connection, so that when they clock off at the end of the day, whenever that is, and they, they sit down and they're like, yeah. You know? And when you can bring that to an organisation, I think the job of the CEO, the job of the leadership is, to, is certainly to help that, to help them to do that. But again, there's the responsibility still sits with, there is still a responsibility with the worker, with the person in the org to, to seek that and to, and to ask for that. And if you, you know, if you don't know how your role fits in the grand scheme of things, ask, right? If, you're, if your leader hasn't told you and you ask and they can't tell you, yeah, okay, maybe you've got a good case for heading for the exit. But, but if you're sitting there going, why haven't they told me? Sorry, you have a responsibility too. And there seems to be this like, massive, um, maybe the great resignation is more the great, the great entitlement, I'm not sure. But um, that's going to get me in a boatload of trouble saying that, so probably. <laughs> I'm going to back you up 100% on that because one of the transformational moments in my life was when I was older in my 30s and I realized that I was responsible solely for what happened to me. I mean, there's accidents, right? There's car crashes, there's the outliers, but but in terms of the relationships that I had or the work that I put out or yet the choice that I made, oh, I could stay up till midnight binge watching something or I could get to bed early and get up and be fresh and have a better perspective. Those are all choices that I made. And so yeah. when you talk about entitlement, I think I, I don't know if this is um, all <laughs> young American males because I went through it and it certainly was not this generation. But as soon as I realized that um, sitting around waiting for someone to help me or tell me what to do or tell me what I needed, the minute that I just grabbed that wheel or took hold of it, because I was still nervous to do that at the time, things started changing for me. Yeah. 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 It's that there's this, um, I think Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, basically said the only two things that you are, that you are in your control are your thoughts and your actions. That's mm -hmm. it. Right. So, Whatever happens around you is going to happen around you. You can't control that, but you can control what you think about it and how you react and how you respond. And that's, there's this massive, you know, that gets more usefully stated. I think Mark Manson says it is, you know, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and there's been, and, and there's a lot of that going around at the moment where people are refusing to take responsibility for, for their own 
shit, basically. Um, yeah. The the one of my favorite one of my favorite things is don't make your shit my shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a good. It's it's actually a pretty good way to go through the world because because you've got to. Everybody has to step up, and this us and theming that's going on, where leadership, organization bad, employee good, right? That that really banal binary way of thinking about it is just off the mark completely, because there's good and bad on both sides, there's responsibility on both sides, and there's success and failure on both sides. And so when you get into an organization, and when I go into an org, that's one of the first things I start to look at. What's that dynamic? What's, you know, what's feeding this sort of dysfunction and sense? You know, it's really the fact that you know, we have a shit purpose is not why things aren't working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that one um, page on the website, you know, who we are, right? That is not oh, the... If I could get organizations to take their damn purpose and values off their websites, I would be the happiest girl in Australia. I'm just like, I'm so over people using them as marketing messages because it drives a really toxic way of framing them. Oh, it, let's talk about that a lot. Because when I would yeah. call on companies and I worked in the training and development space, I would use that against them. But tell me about how that, I'm fascinated by this because I'm a culture um aficionado i have no official okay. culture uh role yep. or responsibilities but so how do how do the mission and values create toxic culture so when you when you use your purpose and values as promotional tools mm. now i'm not saying they don't matter and they are they're incredibly important to shaping and guiding how you do stuff and what you do so values are usefully just how we do things around here effectively and the and culture is that done over and over again <laughs> so that's the relationship of those two things very simply um and and the problem is when you're when you're putting them out there for mass consumption when you're using them to promote yourself you're going to sanitize them you're going to frame them in a way that makes them palatable to other people. You're not actually necessarily going to be particularly honest about what they are. Um, and that's where you get the usual suspects. That's where you get the stuff, the top 10, as I call them, the honesty, integrity, trust, um, <laughs> innovation, teamwork, fun, um, and, you know, you know the list. And 90% of the time they're bullshit. And they're bullshit because they're there for other people's consumption, not for us to use, not usefully day in and day out. Now, this is broad generalisation, and I fully acknowledge there are orgs that is not true for, who have them on their website and who do actually actively and deeply and deliberately use them. However, for every one of those, <laughs> there's probably 100 who that's not true for. And the big driver of it is marketing gets their hands on them and they want to pretty them up. Um, but the process of prettying them up inserts a whole lot of language that people don't necessarily know what it means. So the minute I say I put something in a definition of a value or I use a particular word, everybody's going to load up their baggage about what they think that thing is. 
because we all come to places with baggage. Every single person does. We carry it with us wherever we go and we'll dump it down and it's going to sit there. And every time you use a word that I think I know what it means, I'm going to act as if that's what it is. And there was a, um, a CEO I worked with who, who had a great saying. He said, I'm not afraid that people won't know what our values are. I'm afraid that they'll think they know and they're wrong. Mm. And he was, he's absolutely right in that because if, if I don't know what they are, great, you can tell me about it. You can, you can share it with me. You can get me on board. You can, you can enlist me to the cause, right? But if I think I know what they are and I'm wrong, you've first got to change my mind before you can do any of that other stuff. And now we're in a world of hurt because I'm operating in a way that's not in alignment with what we're trying to do. And this whole idea, uh, no, jump no in, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. I oh, know I was just going to say it because there, and the other part of this, right, is that people have this thing we, and it's, again, it's out there over and over again, hire people who share your values. Right? Make sure you hire people who share your values. Back to that baggage thing. Every single person comes to the organisation with their own value, values intact. The chances that you're going to find, you might find 10 people who share your values up and down, but the chances you're going to find 10,000 people who share those five values that you've chosen out of a top hat is slim to none, right? So, so what we need to be asking instead is this sense of, can you stand with my values? is a much better question. Can you stand beside what we care about and what's important and how we do stuff? Can you step up to that and make that part of who you are for while you're here? I'm not asking you to change out who you are for who we are because that's never going to work. But can you stand with us? That's a, that's a much more realistic and useful way of bringing people into your values than trying to do this wholesale, you have to believe this. Well, sorry, <laughs> I've got my own stuff that I believe. And does that mean I'm not somebody who would who can add useful value to your organisation? Maybe, maybe not. Um, it's helpful if there's one thing, and it usually only needs to be one thing, that, that sort of is a deeply DNA point of how we do stuff. That's the thing you probably want to make sure you know what that is and that you hire for that. But the rest of the stuff on the list, no. Nah. Well, when you said you act as if, that's, I would say, one of my superpowers is that, yeah, okay, whatever, like, we'll just roll with it. But yeah. in, the, in the sales and consulting world, um, an amazing book called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play said, no mm -hmm. guessing when the the client the prospect puts out a term <clears throat> don't guess as to what that means define it yep. and yep. so if it's publicized on the website and it's um a, a value and unless it's defined explicitly yeah people i'm guilty of this because i i tell every manager i've ever worked for every boss if i do something wrong i want you to come talk to me directly Tell me it was me. Tell me what I did wrong, because in meetings or groups where they talk about 
so somebody, you know, did this and did this. So just make sure we all, so I'm going to be processing their information and not that I'm perfect, but I would process it in a way that's like, oh, well, I didn't do it that way. So that's not me. <laughs> I wouldn't, I would never get it. So I need explicit, direct feedback for that. Well, and how you, like the way people go about defining what stuff stands for. Um, and I've been doing this work now for decades, right? And, and, and my process for doing this has evolved and changed because asking people directly, so what does that mean to you? Again, you're going to get the kumbaya because people don't want to feel like you don't want to say something that you're going to judge them on. Like people are super, right. super sensitive to judgment. And so there's a, um, there's a process that I use that came from, well, it came by way of a friend, apparently by way of Aristotle, but I'm not sure of the exact connection. But there's, <laughs> there's three questions that you can ask when you're trying to define something. And this is incredibly useful. I use this all the time. I give it to people for free. It's not my IP. I stole it. So um, uh, the, well, borrowed, better term. Um, and I can't attribute it, which really drives me nuts, other than there's some connection to Aristotle. So apologies out there if somebody is responsible <laughs> for this and I'm not giving you the proper credit. Get in touch. I'm happy to. Um, so it's you ask three questions. Let's just use the word integrity as an example. It's one of the all-time favourites. People love integrity, right? Um, what could possibly go wrong? And so we start with what is it? So we just ask, what is integrity to you? Tell me, give me some answers. Like, just throw it at me. What? Give me some examples, some words, whatever. Then once you've got that list, what isn't it? What mm. is, what's not integrity? And you get sometimes opposite stuff, sometimes just a little bit different. It's all good. And then the last question is the kicker, and I love it. When does it go too far? Mm. Right? So when does it, when is it not to the extent, what is integrity not to the extent of being? When does it go too far? Because when values flip and become a, a liability, and they can be a liability, they flip on the too far stuff. They rarely flip. They don't, the what isn't it stuff is just, Basically, we're full of shit and we don't do stuff that we say. That's easy. But the when it goes too far stuff is they think they're doing it, but somehow it's going badly. And a great example of this is I think Uber had the had the weeby hustling value out of the gate. When Eric Holder came in and did his culture analysis and audit of the place that when Travis was and his frat boys were out of control, he, he basically said, we need to change the values. And I came back, I wrote about it saying, no, what they need to understand is the boundaries of their values because <laughs> we be hustling and turned, like we be hustling and turned into a um, permission to behave badly and be arrogant as all get out under the guise of like, hey, we're getting it done. Um, and if they'd understood when that went too far, maybe that wouldn't have happened because we be hustling's not necessarily a bad value, right? It's the, the Jim Collins definition I love, which is it really matters that you have values and that you use them. It really doesn't matter what they are. Mm. And, and people get all uptight about that and they're like, oh, but you can have bad. Like what about if, you know, light, sheet and steel is your values? I said, then you're not going to be in business for very long. 
<laughs> the marketplace really? is sorted out. That's kind of what you're worried about. But but every value can flip. Every value has a dark side. I don't know if you've ever worked in walked into organizations that are super friendly, right? These they've all got a big smile on their face. Everybody's happy and bouncy and friendly. <laughs> right? Ever tried to have a bad day in one of those places? Like it's rough. ever tried ever tried to give them bad news? you're just being negative we can't do it like just <laughs> work so every value can flip and this is you know, this is the stuff that people don't get um when they talk about this a lot of this um it gets it gets into kumbaya territory and and the toxic stuff comes out because we're trying to be good like we want to we want people to think we're good and our values become a way we can signal that we're good and we're right and we're going to do good things, um, which, you know, as we know, any organisation can do bad stuff sometimes. They don't necessarily do it on purpose. But, you know, so if you want to weaponize your values, put them on your website. <laughs> so... And, and you... seriously, do not be surprised if people turn them into a club that they beat you with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> weaponized that I love that. Um, can you give me an example of an endpoint where you've worked with a, a customer, like a tactical mm -hmm. or a tangible example? Sorry. Yeah. Don't need to tell me who the company is, mm -hmm. but a a value that was not sanitized that was functional whether it was internal facing oh, sure. or external facing yeah yeah heaps so um oh this is this is ages ago um but the there's i don't even know if the company's still around i wouldn't use names anyway i don't but so we we're working with these guys they were i was working with these guys they're a tech company they're a technology back when hardware was a thing <laughs> Um, and, yeah. and it was a pretty aggressive culture. And we used to talk about them as like, the, really, we're talking about a bunch of people who are pretty much kind of bottom, feed, bottom feeders, right? They'll eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> Chew it all up. Um, it's all fodder. And, and it was a fairly competitive, it was a pretty competitive environment as well. And we, we re, we took, They'd been trying to kumbaya themselves and it just wasn't working. Their attention was out of the outside the bounds of reality because they kept hiring people for kumbaya. And what I mean by that is let's all hold hands and get along. And everyone would come in and they'd find this competitive kind of uber <laughs> opportunistic environment and run for the hills in about three months. And so we sort of said, well, instead, let's embrace that and understand the boundaries of that. So it became the value became take every opportunity because that's what mm. they did right but there's a big difference between that and being an opportunistic ass and so once we once we flipped it once i flipped it into something that was a bit more useful they could then apply it within their culture and within how they made decisions as right what's the opportunity in this is really different than how can we squeeze every living ounce of blood out of this and stomp it into its cold, dead heart, right? No, there's, there's, there's a culture shift that happens there that's within the boundaries 
of what the organization believes and who they are. So it doesn't feel like we're trying to be someone else. It just means we're, we're actually taking notice of where that goes too far and when it becomes a negative. And let's embrace the positive aspects of it instead. And they did. And, um, you know, interestingly, we knew we were getting someone where people started putting Dilbert cartoons up. <laughs> because people were getting in the spirit of it, right? They were starting to embrace it. Um, and embrace who they were instead of fighting it tooth and not fighting it, but but just blithely like hitting people over the head with it, which wasn't working out for them very well. <laughs> so I have um, a, a, a sample set of one here, but going back to the Aristotle <clears throat> integrity example, and then this quote about you know, the the opportunity that you just mentioned is it better for values to be phrased as a question to spur thought when they're being used? That's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm pretty much a, um, I don't, I'm agnostic when it comes to how values should be stated. Okay. I, I don't, like a lot of people have their, you have the word and you have the description and you have the, like, they have their, their, if you like, their model for how the state of values. I'm, I'm a, what works for you kind of gal. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if a question worked for an organization, I'd have no problems with it being a question. Um, I've certainly used questions to help people consider how the value might play for them. So going back to the integrity piece. Um, so the the org that I worked with on that stuff, um, the integrity was interesting because when it went too far was when it became rigid and dogmatic, when it was unwilling to mm. shift in the face of something that had changed in the environment, right? So we're going to keep our promise no matter what, uh, even if it drives us off a cliff because we said we'd do this thing rather than actually accepting that a promise is never broken until the point at which it was supposed to happen, you can always go back and reset. And so that became a really important part of how that was defined was, yes, we want to make promises, but we've got to do it in a way that allows for us to, to shift. We've got to do it in a way that's agile because we're, we're in an environment and a sector that's changing on a dime. And so that's something where, and so it was, it became their, their whole integrity thing became defined by that limit, by that boundary. Now, how, you know, how are we making a pro, how are we making our promises? You know, do we have a plan? There's, there's questions that you can build out as part of the kind of behaviors that you want people to have that go along with the value. And that's a really useful way to do it. Well, and that's a <clears throat> perfect segue to one of the chapters I wanted to talk about in your book, uh, which I, I love the title, The Unheroic Work. <laughs> that, are, are, are you a stoic follower yourself? I mean, I know you mentioned Epictetus, but... I, I, am, I am a bit of a stoic follower, but the unheroic work is from a um, it's from a passage in a book by Jedediah Purdy, um, which is called For Common Things. And the um, I won't I won't 
be able to quote the the passage exactly, but um, essentially he talks about the fact that our our common um, that the endeavor of the commons effectively is always a continuing or eroding accomplishment, and that to me mm. felt like a lovely definition. It's unheroic work, is what he called it, um, and. I felt that that was a lovely way of thinking about actually what a brand truly is, that it is a result of unheroic work done across an organisation and it's always something that continues that you're always adding or eroding value depending on whether you keep or break your promises and, and what and how you do things. And um, and so the, when, I was, when, I wrote, when I did my first book, which is called Between Making Money and World Peace, um, the title for that book is a line from the one of the articles. And so that sort of set me up. I'm like, okay, well, this one, I kind of have to do the same thing. So I went hunting through all my articles to try and find the phrase that would work. And the unheroic work was the obvious one because I talk about <laughs> it all the time and everybody always gets it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was another one of the enlightened uh, <clears throat> with the smallest of ease at the front end of that word for me is understanding, you know, I'd mentioned before about I'm the, I'm responsible for my own journey. I have to take care of myself, Yeah. but then understanding that no matter what the job is, there's always going to be taking out the trash. Like my friend Vinny Tortorich had mentioned, or it's, cleaning up your desk or something. And um, it was a, a blues musician, maybe his buddy guy, I can't remember, but he said, I play for free and they pay me to travel. Yeah. So I don't care if you're uh, on stage at you know, the, the, the Sydney Opera House and you're in front of how many, how many people does that hold? I don't even know. How many people? Oh, right? Sydney Opera House. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not as big as people think it is, but it's thousands. <laughs> okay. On stage, performing your work of art, singing, music, whatever it may be, that's the joy. But the, the unheroic work of uh, getting to that point is that's becoming a grown up right there and being an adult. And, um, I want to that, gush for just a second because oh gosh, gush so, away. I love it. I love it. I love it with gush. So I'm going to totally fanboy on you for just a second here because um, I just found Debbie Millman's podcast. I don't know if you know who she yeah. is. Yeah. And I've been uh, burning through those episodes and the, the nuance of the conversations and the people that she speaks to, I'm, having that exact sense that you could be a guest on her show because this, oh, this nuanced discussion about brand and the time really nice you to say, I, I sincerely mean it. Like the, the more that I'm talking to you, the more that um, it's like, <laughs> we should hang up and just get you onto Debbie's podcast as soon as possible. <laughs> but um, we, we can always, we can do a part two, right? I'm always happy for a part two, but um, okay. But this, but this stuff is, yeah, this stuff matters. Like I said, I've been thinking out loud about this for for, for decades, and and it's and I say thinking out loud because the way I I practice, I work with orgs. I, I certainly speak on this stuff, and I've written on it 
I think at this point I'm at nearly 600 articles and counting on, on this topic over the past um, about 12 years. And so, but like you, you were saying, you get, you know, you're inspired by things from different places and you, you sort of they spark things in your brain. And that's what happens to me as well. Like I read voraciously. I listen to stuff all the time. I love Debbie's podcast and, and too many others. Um, and I always, they spark something like, oh, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about that. And when I, when I layer it and align it to this, it, it helps people see it in a different way. And so I'm always interested in how that works because the way that, I think the way that the vast majority of people work with and think about brand, I say, you know, if it's on your to-do list, it's in the wrong place. And, and that's the way most people deal with it is they look at it as something they have to do. And we've got to do the brand, right? And I'm like, no, it's a result of everything you do. What, how, does, how does this other thing I'm doing play a part in keeping a promise and in keeping that promise it's part of people's experience. Experience is just where promises get kept or broken. That's it, right? So if you have a good experience, chances are whatever was promised to you or you thought or your expectation got kept. If you have a bad experience, it didn't. <laughs> it's not all that complicated. And so how am I going to, as an organisation, make sure that more people have promises kept than broken well, the only way I can do that is if I'm really deliberate about the promises I make and I take that all the way back and use my identity, that stuff that's the what matters most, your purpose, how we do stuff, our values, to make promises. And, and when I do that, the risk that people are going to have a bad experience is way lower and that they're going to believe me next time through the roof, that they're going to come back, that that thing that, they think we stand for is reinforced, that value grows. And when all that happens, I can do more work with that, right? That value lets me do more work more easily. I can hire people more easily. I keep my customers. I can take money and, and capital that I would have had to use to do that if I don't have good value in my brand. And I can, and I can use it for innovation and I can use it for expansion and I can grow with it. It, it's a big ecosystem of how this stuff works together. Um, and the really oversimplistic way people try and bust it down to, well, if you, if you have these three words and you know what they are and, you know, everybody can recite them by rote and yay, you, um, is, <laughs> is largely not the way it works in the real world. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and <in> this... over. <laughs> <laughs> This is all making the, the the chapter that I started reading this afternoon, Values as an Operating System, in your book, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's clarifying what that actually means. And mm -hmm. um, if I could take a, a stab at my homework here, it's that the the values as an operating system are like the, the actions that you do after you've done this exercise and gone through it. And like, these are the ways in which we, uh, is it demonstrate? Would demonstrate be the right word values or? Yeah. yeah. Well, the way we use them, 
So it's not even okay. a demonstration, like value as an operating system, like the operator, if you use that analogy and take it forward, you, you layer programs on top of an operating system and they work a particular way because that operating system's there, right? So if you think about your programs as the stuff you do. So if you layer the stuff you do on top of your values, in other words, the values become the way the stuff you do works. So if I'm, let's just say I've got a, a value around open communication, right? So if something I'm doing is I've accepted um, that I'm going to do, I'm going to complete a task for someone by a certain date. Now, if I'm using my value as an operating system, I'm going to, I'm going to be um, really clear with that person about what that, you know, what it's going to take, how long it's going to take me, and the commitment I make as a result of that will reflect it. If I'm not reflecting my value of open communication, right, I might just say, oh, I'll have it for you on Tuesday, whether I can or not, and figure it out later. That's not using your that's not using your value as an operating system. And that's where having values that are actually genuinely part of how you do stuff, what you care about and something is so important because if you're not, and if they're not, using them in that way is impossible. It's always a retrofit. Whereas when they are genuine, that that block and tackle action and decision stuff becomes more natural and easy. Like I don't have to think about acting in a way that's about my values because my values are how I act. <laughs> they're subconscious now or unconscious, I guess. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, they're woven. Like they're part of the fabric. I don't have to try and figure out how to stitch them in later. Um, and, and for anyone who's ever tried to do that, I'm, I'm all ears as to how that worked out for you. <laughs> the the other and i didn't read this because i wanted you to take me through it uh, on purpose was that don't start with why and yep. i wanted to uh discover more about that because i see marketing and one of my questions is always who cares so something will be published. I think LinkedIn is probably the, the graveyard of stuff that gets pushed out that has no, I don't know if it's context or meaning or connection, <laughs> at least no connection to me. And I just kind of go, why did they post this? So my, my brain is looking for the why in that, but you're <laughs> suggesting don't start with the why. And now, uh, I'm going to put my hand down and Professor Hogan, please take me through this. <laughs> oh, my God. If I'm being that obnoxious, you need to slap me. Um, so, okay, no. so don't start with why. Of course, there's a very famous book and talk around that topic um, that I'm obviously playing against. But when I talk about don't start with why, to begin with, it's around that organisations are always, you know, became this thing of like, why, we, why, 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 why? And years ago, I stopped using, when I first started doing this work, I was, I was on the five whys bus. I used to use the five word, like why, why, why? And just, I always found that it, it, it created a barrier that you had to climb, but I never understood why it created that barrier. Why it created, why, why created the barrier, right? And so I started, 
started using a different question, absolutely, but I didn't really think about it all that much. It was just like, okay, this one works better, so we're going to go with it. And then I was reading uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, which if you haven't read that book, it should like slide to the top of your reading list. Um, it yes, is probably one of Done. the most useful things you'll read. Um, hi, Chris. Um, <laughs> I don't know him, but <laughs> hi, Chris. Uh, and it's, it's on the very short list of books I recommend to everyone I work with that they should read. And Chris was an uh, FBI hostage, I think FBI or CIA hostage negotiator. So never split the differences theoretically about negotiation, but it's not. It's actually about how to communicate clearly and get people to do stuff that you want them to do and feel good about mm. it. Um, and so when he was talking about he got to this section he was talking about and he was talking about why and he said he said why there's virtually no way to ask the question why without it feeling like an accusation and he's so right and so I call it it's an accusation it's an inquiry wrapped in an accusation is how it feels <laughs> it's like so why are you here and immediately I take two steps backwards right <clears throat> Like, why do you want to know? Like, what is it to you? And all of a sudden I'm defensive. It, it really drives people into a, into a sub, quite often subconsciously defensive way of being. And so that article was very much about consider it starting with a different question to get you where you want to go. Yes, why is what you want to know? But it's a crappy question to get you there. So start with something else. What's most important to you? What matters most? Right. There's all sorts of questions you can ask that. And he talks about them as calibrated questions, which start with what or how that immediately take the emotion out of it. But the other part of don't start with why is and, and it's a different article I wrote was this this idea, this thing that why nobody starts with why. <laughs> why is always a retrofit? <laughs> right? We figure it out later. It's, I was years ago when I was when I um, had played in the design agency space. <laughs> I'm a designer by training, though I haven't designed anything for years. But I always used to laugh at those, you know, the descriptions of logos. Yes, that, that this logo stands for, and it has, and it comes from, <laughs> and it's about this. It's like that starts always written after. <laughs> It's not like, it's like justification out the wazoo. And why can often end up being like that in the way it's thought about? Because most orgs start with what and how. They just do. I, even, Steve, even Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all, like they started with what? Like what they were doing, the, the, the deep driver for it became apparent to them, became um, it wasn't until they'd been doing it for a while they could even get their heads around it, right? So, so even this sort of sense of a of a startup or an early stage company sort of coming like this is our why in the world. It's like, yeah, come back and talk to me in five years, because <laughs> right? I want to see what you do. Like, I don't care what you say, and nobody else does either. They only care what you do which is where Google got themselves in a world of hurt when they ran around trumpeting don't be evil and then sold out to China. Like, and, and Nike got themselves into all sorts of trouble saying just do it and then use child labor to make their sneakers. Like this stuff has consequences if you don't actually understand what it means. 
And back to a really good reason not to put it on your website is exactly that stuff happening, is that people will use it as a club to beat you with, um, <laughs> which doesn't give organisations many places to screw up. And they will because they're made of people and people screw up. And so we, we sort of expect them to be perfect, perfect fealty to this thing that they say because we know what it is. And that's not, unre- that's not necessarily unreasonable that we might think that because they've put it out there. But we've lost all ability to have a bit of a grey area where, okay, maybe they really don't want to be evil and there was some really good, uh, there was some really strong business reasons why they wanted to try this thing in China. <laughs> we don't have, we don't allow for that anymore because we've bought in hook, line and sinker this, this idea that this stuff's binary and specific and it has no wiggle room. Is there a size of an organization where culture just by sheer mass of headcount it starts tailing off where the, the the culture and the values just are impossible to get better than like a, a b minus or i know i'm talking yeah. like three or four different axes yeah. on this graph but yeah. have you in your experience have you seen a point where at x number of people they're headed for some sort of conflict um well, obviously, the more people you have, the harder it gets, right? And and the more stuff that you're asking them to try and think about and do, add that as a multiplier effect. So if you've if you've got if you've got thirty thousand people and six values, what do you think the chances are that everybody's going to do it all? <laughs> like it's math. I- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I've got if I've got three people, it's not hard. There's and I and I'm going to use this example, but I can't, I really must look up and write down and put it on a sticky note on my forehead. Who came up with this? Because I forget it every time. Um, I heard it in a Tim Ferriss podcast. It's called the Rule of Three and Ten. So oh. every time something expands by by a power of three or a power of ten, everything changes. So when you've got one person you're pretty much going on doing stuff. Like you tell yourself stuff and you, if you don't do it, you feel bad about yourself for not doing it and you beat yourself up and all that stuff, right? You are your critic. When there's two people, it pretty much goes the same way, right? The other person just becomes the person that you're telling yourself stuff to instead of your own stuff. As soon as you have three people, everything changes. The dynamic shifts fundamentally. And then that whatever that shifts to will hold out pretty much until there's 10 people and then everything will shift again. And then it'll hold out pretty much till there's 30 people, then everything will shift and on up until you get to about 10,000 people or probably 3,000 people. And then it, it really, whatever's, what, whatever works there is going to work no matter how much bigger you get and you go looking for other problems to solve um, or other things just change and it has a different, it has a different role. And in my experience, that's pretty much true. And if you look at where particularly startups and early stage companies get into a world of hurt, it's because they grow so fast, they don't go through that process. So, you know, I was working with one group, they'd gone from 30 people to 300 people in six months. Yikes. Right? 
you haven't gone through those. <laughs> You're still doing stuff like you've got 30 people. Now, how many ways does that go wrong that you can poke a stick at? Like so many ways that goes wrong. And as a result, yeah, they had a bunch of problems. And, and they looked at it it's like, oh, you know, our culture's gone to crap and we're really, you know, things suck around here. And it only did because they hadn't transitioned through the stages. And they hadn't changed the stuff they needed to change to make the dynamic work at 300. So I'm not sure it's impossible. I think it's just got to be a really deliberate thing. And the other part that I've seen is people bite off way too much. So if you've seen any kind of culture or values indoctrination program or whatever you want to call them in organisations, um, culture plan, I take one look at it, I'm like, no one's going to do this. <laughs> Just, <laughs> they've got jobs. <laughs> like, right. And exactly do you expect them to do this? Um, and so, again, like, I'm a less, I'm a less is more kind. I like less is more. So... Um, back to my wonderful photography teacher when I was in design school, less is more peoples, he used to say to us. And, and it's true, like pick one thing and start there. What's, what's one thing that we can do and we can do it as a group across the business? We can all, and we can do it, each of us in a way that is relevant to our particular part of the business because doing it in finance is going to look different than doing it in R&D that's going to look different than doing it in marketing. Right? And then once we get that going and we've got a handle on that, then we can look at what's next. But if we then look at what's next, what's next going to be different than we thought it was going to be when we started the one thing? Because the one thing's going to have an effect. It's going to ripple beyond the boundaries of just that one thing. So if I'm planning out like, oh, I've got a 12-month culture program and at month three we're going to do this and at month six we're going to do this, it's like, I guarantee by the time you get to month three, it's bullshit. <laughs> it's just not happening. Everything's like, it's all, it's the, And so we spent both, we spent so much money on that sort of stuff only to have it end up on a shelf because everything's changed. Um, so it's like, when I talk about that, this is, you know, take, take this stuff, purpose and values, use it to make promises, Keep or break them in experience, rinse, repeat through however many people you have in your organization, how many things they do every day, how much stuff, how many offices you have. And you start to get a sense of how this stuff matters and where you can start just how a little thing can have a massive impact. It's really toxic, this whole idea that you can, that, that you can consistently delight people. It, because a delight, you can't delight me if I know, if I'm expecting it. Delight is by definition something unexpected. <laughs> and so if you're setting an expectation and meeting it, that's great. That's going to make me happy. That's going to satisfy me. And guess what? That's 90% of the ball game because hardly anybody does that consistently. If you think of your own interactions with different companies, right? There's not that many of them that do that really well consistently. Um, and so this whole delight thing, I call it the myth of wow, because it can only happen in response to an opportunity that I present you with to do something above and beyond. So you've got to set yourself up so that you can do that when I give you that opportunity. But otherwise, you know, stick to your knitting, block and tackle over and over. Consistent will beat wow every time. 
over the long haul. Um, and, and the other toxic thing about the delight is that whatever you did becomes my new expectation. So be really careful because if you set this expectation, like you send me flowers with my order, then if I don't get flowers next time, I'm, I'm going to kind of feel, I'm going to feel bad, right? And, and there's, an there's a great example of this in, in Denver, in Colorado. I don't know if they still do this. So back when I, when I lived there, there, a new place opened called the Capitol Grill and it's mm -hmm. a chain. But anyway, so they opened and it was sort of a bit of a New York clubby place to go to for, for lunches and stuff. There's all wood and dark booths and stuff. it was cool. So we went there, went there for lunch. I can't even remember who I was with, a couple of people. And our waiter comes up and he's he's really nice. He's, hi, it's great to meet you. And what are your names? And, hey, do you have business cards or anything? I'd love to, you know, well, that's a bit odd. Okay. So we had we gave him our business cards, had a nice lunch. And, and then a couple of days later, a little note came in the mail from our waiter basically saying, it was great to meet you. I hope you had a lovely lunch. Look forward to seeing you next time. Fabulous, right? I was like, wow, that's amazing. I've never had a work. <laughs> I'm so delighted. It was delightful, right? I didn't expect it. Um, it was so delightful. I never had a note from my waiter before. <laughs> I <was maybe laughs> scrolled on the back of the check, right? So we went back the next time for lunch because I'm like, oh, of course we're going back there. That's fantastic. And so now a different waiter comes up and says, and says, oh, hi, how is it? Oh, nice to meet you and all the rest of it. Collected our business cards again. This time we knew what was coming, right? It was, it was still nice to get the note, but we expected it now. And then the next time we went there, that didn't happen. And I was like, what? I'm not noteworthy anymore? Like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> and so this... This is what happens. So you've got to be really careful about how. So all these, you know, there's all these stories out there with Netflix and the, you know, the customer service guy who's having a conversation with the guy like he's Star Trek and the, you know, Zappos sending people flowers and, and all of those things. But when you start to try and, when you start to try and preempt what will delight, like, you really, you, you potentially set yourself up. Another great story is that Zappos related is a friend of mine ordered some shoes from Zappos and set, set the shipping for when, for when she wanted it. And then Zappos being Zappos before they got bought by, Zapp, by Amazon said, we know better. We're going to delight her and send it overnight and give her her shoes. She'll be so much happier if she gets them overnight rather than like the two or three days or whatever she'd asked for, except she was going away. <laughs> That's why she'd asked for the longer shipping. And so instead her shoes like got delivered and sat on her doorstep in the snow for like three days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they're in a box, but still. Um, and so this is the, these things, like when organizations start to feel like there's an arrogance to this, some of this stuff, this really, you know, we know better, we know what you want. Um, and, and that flows into organizations, knee jerky, constant neediness of tell us what you want, tell us what you like, tell us how we did. In a, and and there's, a, there's an underlying desperation to that, that, that actually is the flip side of this.
where they feel like they have, they've been conditioned that they have to ask, 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 ask. How do we do? How do we do? How can we improve? And it's just like, just do your frigging job. <laughs> I'm good. It's not, it's not my job to me. <laughs> here in Australia, right? Our Australia Post is my favourite customer thing, right? But they do at the moment. I love it. Not. Um, so whenever they deliver me a package, deliver a package, I literally get an email from them with a survey saying, how did we do? Okay, classic example. Did I get my package? Well, you know whether I did or not. You friggin' delivered it. <laughs> I had to sign for it. So I'm assuming you know I got it. So how did you do? What else do you want to know? I... <laughs> Did he sing a song when he delivered it? No. Do I want him to? Absolutely not. I mean, it gets ridiculous at some point. What data do you collect already that can tell you how you're doing? What stuff do you already know that you can look at instead of just constantly outsourcing your desperation on your poor customers in this endless search for improvement that you should kind of be able to figure out a little bit on your own and, and largely is driven by this sort of culture of every little we've we've got to measure and capture every little thing um about how your experience was when was the last time you did an airport serve an airline survey how many questions was on it oh 30 yeah yeah it's like easy question how was your flight (laughs) crash free I got there on time and it landed. I'm good. <laughs> how much, what else do you want, right? And, and so there is this sense of like, oh, tell us how we did, tell us. It, it, feels, it feels kind of icky and desperate most of the time. Well, I'm laughing because I can't wait to go out on a date next time and say, I'm going to work extremely hard to not delight you. <laughs> Hey, if you've set the expectations already for what the date's going to be and you meet that, she'll probably be good. (laughs) I still doubt that, but. (laughs) (laughs) But but we get caught up. We're so caught up in this culture of, of, you know, everything's got to be more excellent. The escalation, even just in language is crazy. It's not, it's not good. It's not enough anymore to be good. Great's even a bit ho-hum, right? Awesome's on the downward trend. You've got to be excellent. You've got to be amazing. You've got to be out of this world, right? There's this massive escalation that happens. I was working on, I was working with a company on, on, some, on some purpose work. Um, and and we would work, and we had the word good in there. And somebody came back and they said, "Oh, it doesn't doesn't good feel a bit like like we're not uh, that we're not trying hard enough." And I said, "What the hell's wrong with good? Like, <laughs> when did good not become good enough?" Yeah. Right. Um, and and here, Jim. Yes, Collins. Yes, you have a lot to answer for. Um, is in good not in. You know, <laughs> <laughs> in good to great but but he's very much talking about how the organization performs right but this whole idea that um and I think it might have been Zeth Godin who said 
at one point, and I can't remember in what context it was a talk I heard him give or something, where he talked about like, if you're shooting for B plus and hitting it consistently, you're probably beating the competition. Yeah. Right? And if you're shooting for A's or A pluses the whole time, you're leaving money on the table because chances are you're doing a whole bunch of stuff more than you need to. Um, and that, that actually ties into this quite old book that I still love and recommend a lot called The Myth of Excellence. Ooh, it's by, it's by a guy called Fred Crawford and oh, what's the, the other author? I always forget the other guy and the poor other guy on the author is Ryan Matthews. So Fred Crawford and Ryan Matthews wrote Myth of Excellence. And this is 20 years ago. I, I reckon the book is that old. So the examples are a bit out of date, but the idea in it is solid. So their, their perception, their idea is that there's basically five categories of things that you can be, that you can focus on as your number one thing. So it's product, price, service, experience, and access mm. are the five things. So every organization, you can only have one that's your number one. You can have a second thing that's also that's important. And then the other three, you've just got to be pretty much on par with the rest of your sector um, or the sort of the general low-lying expectations around your sector or you're kind of going to go out backwards. And it, it's incredible to me how consistently that plays. And the best example that I've always used is Walmart and Target. So despite the fact that they both at face value look like they compete directly against each other, they're not. So Walmart is very much price first, then product. And then if you look at service access and experience, you know, pretty much, Target is the flip. They're product first, then price. And then when it comes to, you know, service access experience, pretty much the same. And it plays out, this stuff plays out so over and over, but that, that little flip at the top means that there are people who shop at Walmart who think people who shop at Target are like self-important wankers. And there'll be people who <laughs> shop at Target, the people who shop at Target think Walmart people like, a, you, know, you know what. And so it's just that little flip is enough to just attract different people. Um and so, like, everyone is not your customer. So figure out that high-level what is our focus. And you're going to go a long way to not leaving money on the table by trying to shoot for A-pluses on stuff you shouldn't. So going back to the Walmart and Target example <clears throat> and how Target has product first, mm -hmm. how much of that is reality and how much of that is perception? Well, I mean, if you look at... So Target were the ones that pioneered, for example, the designer collaborations, right? With, you know, it was starting with people like Michael Graves and then into the fashion stuff. And what was really interesting was when Walmart tried to copy that, they failed miserably because they're, a lot of their customers, like, I don't care who design, like, I, I just care about the fact that I can buy a pair of jeans for 10 bucks, right? That's, because that's all I've got. Um, and that's not to say that pe those pe the people who shop at Walmart don't, the people who shop there don't care about stuff, but they have different concerns. Sure. Right? And, and people who shop at Target, they, they are maybe motivated a little bit differently. So it, and, and so the product, the product piece that, that Walmart has as a, as a, it's not a huge shift. Like 
product for product, what they carry is probably not that different. Right. Right. Yeah, Cause there's only so many places but, you can source, exactly. you know, huge big box inventory yeah. from, yeah. but there's just enough. That's a shift to, cr- to just nudge it the other way. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't take a heap. Um, I always, I love, I love people who complain that, you know, Apple's customer service sucks, for example. Like a lot of people have that complaint about Apple. I said, when did Apple could say that they did great customer service? <laughs> yeah. Where did they say that? Like nowhere. Um, that they have they promise different stuff. But if in reality, they can't, their service is no better than any or no worse than any other tech company, really. You know, they're not, they're not much, they're not horribly worse at service than than any of the other technology players who they compete against. They're pretty much par for par. Where they excel is in the shit that they really care about, which is product and product and experience. Right? So it's it's an interesting thing to play with. And it feeds back into brand because if you don't know what that thing is that you stand for, Right, you can't you can't hold your core and stimulate progress. Again, Jim Collins has this great line where he says, "Preserve the core and stimulate progress at the same time." Mm. Right, and so to do that, you've got to know you've got to be so deeply rooted in your core in that. What do we stand for? What's most important? So, but that isn't a constraint. That isn't a bound. That's a boundary, not a constraint right? You can still iterate, you can grow that, you can change that. And the great companies do. Otherwise, you don't end up with the iPhone and you don't end up with (laughs) some of this stuff that is that is ever like, well, Apple can only ever sell computers. Right? Okay, fine. We'll just think about what a computer is a bit differently. We'll give you one you can put in your pocket or wear on your wrist or... (laughs) That's, that's how you stimulate progress while holding your core. So um, but the, the to feed it, like to go, so to take it all the way back to experience as well, that, that foundation, that core is also super important to how you think about experience and what the promise, what expectations you set, what promises you make. Because without that, you can really, you can go off the rails and, and so much of the design the experience of design stuff that I see because it's every like literally for a while here in Melbourne where I live I, I jokingly said to some friends I think I could stand on like the one of the main intersections in the C in the central business in the CBD and just say anybody around here an experienced designer and literally I'd have five people walk up to me like, <laughs> every man and his dog seemed to be in the gig uh, that's shifting a bit but it, it was the new. It's the. It was the new black. It was the hot thing, right? It, we've got it. But the problem is, if you if you decouple it, if you're just talking about experience and you're looking at an outside lens of what is everyone else doing and we have to do that versus what do we care about and how does that drive how we do stuff, right? You very easily fall into the trap of making promises you can't keep in a literal sense. It's not even you miskeeping them. It's that you don't have. the 
the resources, the cap- the skills, the t- people, the technology, the whatever, to actually keep the promises that you're making. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a business term, and I've actually tried to find this, and I need to either research it or stop talking about it, but it was kind of the business equivalent of jumping the shark where a company has a very, very strong core competency. They've got a great customer base, a great product. They've got that figured Mm -hmm. out. And they went from one degree of separation from that to Mm -hmm. 90 degrees of separation. They went on a hard right turn and Mm -hmm. there was, and I don't know if it's a widespread business term, but the article I was reading said that he's figured out how to track this in terms of businesses that are going to fail because they've thought that they were, I saw it in the bike industry where there's companies that were known for shoes, for example, and they decided, Oh, people need helmets. We're going to start doing helmets and yeah, completely different. Like, yes, you're still in the bike industry tent at that circus but you're, you're a, a juggler and now like, let's, let's get some elephants. <laughs> Bring in the clowns, right? <laughs> That's probably a much better metaphor for the business acumen there. But yeah, it's like, what is wrong with doing one thing well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, the do lectures guys have a whole list. They call it the do one thing well. They put out a list every year where they just investigate and and do a bunch of research and then they put together this list of companies that do one thing really well. Um, and 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 people um, and that one thing can have you know there's there's the there's the Henry Ford problem, right where. Originally, Henry Ford did the Model T. It was, you could have every colour as long as it was black. And, and, and he stuck to that. And then the competitors came along and said, well, let's offer them black and white and red. And, and people are like, ooh, choice. Yay. Mm-hmm. And, right, and so that, that was problematic because he wasn't set up to do black and white. <laughs> it, was, it, it created some problems. And there's a lot of research in the number in where choice becomes inert, like where choice drives people to inertia. Like there's too much choice. I can't make a decision. Um, Barry, Barry Schwartz writes about this really eloquently around the paradox of choice is that there's, there's a, there's a magic amount where we want to have a sense that we have choice. Um, but if it gets too fragmented too much, then we kind of get frozen and we can't decide. And, and I'm not sure, I can't remember what the magic number is, but I, I'm pretty sure it's something like about three to five colors. <laughs> Anything above that, right? I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to get the black one. Um, and and it's, seriously, I think that's a lot of reason why black's the most popular color in any clothing choice, right? It's because the rest of it's just a bit hard to get your head around. But in terms of different products, yeah, I think there's an interesting, when people become too fragmented and it feels like, I love you for this and I trust you for this and I I have confidence in you for this. I don't know how that relates to this. And so what you're trying to do is leverage my 
you know, my love for this other thing that you do and you're, you're trying to say, you love us for this, you'll love us for this as well. But you haven't given me any reason to love you for that. Like you haven't actually told me this, unless you can really eloquently tell me the story for why that, why that crossover matter, how that works, how does it fit underneath what I know of you? Then, yeah, I'm probably going to be a bit sus about that. Um, you know, a classic one, recent one, Allbirds, the sneakers, um, which I, I mean, I love Allbirds, seriously, most comfortable things I've ever put on my feet. They're like having a hug on your foot. It's so nice. Um, trademark Michelle, you can't use it, Allbirds. But they, um, <laughs> but now they've gone into underwear and other clothes and other apparel. Right. And it's like, I'm good with my, I'm good on my apparel, guys. I don't need you. I need you. I need you. And in the process, the sneakers aren't quite as like the last ones I got weren't quite as good as the first one. Like they they Uh. they changed the recipe on me. I'm like they're still good. They're still still super comfortable. Still lovely, but bit different, right? So I I I I like that question. I posted something on uh, a thing on LinkedIn a couple of I think last week, a couple of weeks ago. Who knows when people are listening to this? So um. It's, it was an article by Yvonne Schwenard about why Patagonia's started selling food. Mm, I'll link to that. Because there's a right-hand turn, right? Yes. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Can I, can I have some salmon with my hoodie? <laughs> <laughs> Just quite, but, but he makes it quite an he, he, he He draws the line between them. He's like, we're in, like, we're in business to save the home planet. Food is one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest environmental problems of our time. And so if we bring our, if we bring our lens to, you know, the best, make the best quality product, you know, do cause no unnecessary harm, use business to solve the world's climate crisis, you know, we can, we can bring that lens to food in a way that makes sense. And if we can do that and in service to that, like support our overall mission then then how can we not and so i was like okay i i can i can get on board with that because you've you've made the case for me so what you're talking about are these guys that all of a sudden it's like hey how about some of this (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but i like how patagonia tied it back to their identity there's a purpose they they have they have a process and a mindset and what they stand for. And so in that, in that capacity, their customers should resonate with that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There's not many, there's not many companies on the planet that do a better job than Patagonia does in what I call pushing what they care about into every single nook and cranny of their business. Like you, you can poke a stick at that, at that business at just about every level. And it's hard not to find, you know, their, their mission, playing a role in how they make decisions. Um, and I mean, it's one of the reasons I use them all the time as an example, when people say, you know, who, who's your, who's your number one, like, do you, that you think does this really well? I said, it's a pretty short list. Um, and different companies do it well in different ways. Um, people get a bit horrified when I use Walmart as an example. I said, look, I'm not saying Walmart's a good company <laughs> in terms of how they behave on some things. But you can't fault them for how rigorously and relentlessly they pursue 
their goal of lower prices. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, you know, it, it transformed how they approached logistics. It transformed how they approached time management of their staff. It transformed like in quite toxic ways sometimes. I'm not saying those things were good, but there is a relentlessness to the mindset. Um, and, and they're actually probably a good example of when does it go too far? <laughs> Right, that that idea of what is it, what isn't, when does it go too far? <laughs> so if it's at any cost, then yeah, you've probably gone too far. But still, there's lessons for people in that. Well, I was <clears throat> I wanted to go back to the the color choice for a second because I had my my clothing company, I was I had this goal that I, I wanted the part part of it to be looking less like a home craft project. Mm-hmm. And it was one of these things where I had pursued this and pursued this, but I didn't stop that from letting it get into the marketplace. And so even though I knew, <clears throat> excuse me, at some point it could get better, mm-hmm. this was a technical challenge I wanted to overcome, partially because of performance, partially because of what I wanted to make the product appear more uh, commercial and I did it, found a wonderful partner in the Pacific Northwest who prints these amazing designs. I could do full custom. I can do this. And I was preparing my business taxes last year and looking at the, the rundown, the inventory report, the sales of it. And it's, it's a, there's not even a close argument that customers prefer the black and and i look at the the exponential overhead of maintaining different colors and different inventories and things like that that again i look at perfection and i step back to the functional and i see differences in the photos on the website so i i love e-commerce sites that are seamless where you click on the jacket color and the the mannequin, the model doesn't change. It's like this magic transition. And I've got some that are lit one way and the angles are the other and all this. And I'm like, okay, it's not perfect, but it's functional. And I've thought oftentimes, and I think you've given me the answer is that I just offer black. And if people email me and go, Hey, I saw that that Belgian blue that you had like, Oh yeah, we, we can make it like he wants it. We can do it, but then I can simplify and consolidate. It's less things to print, less things to manage. And the customers have voted unequivocally. And now I just got to be smart enough and pay attention. Well, there's a way to present it, right? It's like you voted. We listened. Right. And use the stat, whatever it is. Like 96% of the of, of this thing that we sold last year was black. You bought 96% of you bought the black one. So um, it, you've spoken and we've listened. And so um, goodbye, Belgian blue. Um, <laughs> and and if you love Belgian blue, we're really like, um, l- let us know. We're always happy to bring it back. Um, and, and again, Patagonia did this. They did a massive rationalization of their product line. 
and they they cut a huge chunk of it because they would do it. They were getting into that thing of let's if we're doing four colors, like ten will be better. Um, not necessarily, probably not. And so that's you know though that's what I'm talking about in terms of the statistics, like the data that you've got that's telling you. You don't need to go out to your customers and say you could go out and you could do a survey to your customers, right, and say. We're, we're really interested, like, what colours do you want? What colours do you love? All the rest of it. <laughs> and people will come back and they'll say, oh, we love the pink one. It's so cool. And then they buy the grey one. <laughs> because, and, and I do this, I do this myself all the time where I've got to stop myself and go, I know I love how it looks. I will never wear it. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> I will never wear it. And so you've got to be, a, and but most, a lot of people, when we're in the moment and answering those questions, like, oh, yeah, the hot pink would be fab. And orange, hell yeah, I want a pair of orange sneakers. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't want to announce my presence with a pair of sneakers. Like, sorry. <laughs> but, but you've already got the data. You don't need um, to go out and ask them. Right. What they bought will te- is more honest, right? They voted with their money <laughs> instead of their eyes being bigger than their stomachs, right? They voted with their money. <laughs> this will probably, in, in for the rest of our relationship, Michelle, be the only thing we ever disagree on is that well, I absolutely need a pair of orange sneakers <laughs> 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 because I, I'm, I've found that uh, I, I love patrolling vintage and thrift stores and things like that. And I've built up a very bold and robust collection of sneakers and orange is the only gap in the rainbow that I don't have. So, <laughs> well, go check out all birds. I think they have orange ones. Um, okay. But, but they, but, and, and I was just throwing that out there because actually I quite like bright sneakers, but that's, um, but the, it's, it's that, it's that idea of how, um, what we're com- and there are people in what we're comfortable with and there are people in the world that absolutely love wearing bright colors and I'm always more power to you because I put one on and I feel like a clown so I can't <laughs> um, my my uh, sort of <laughs> my entire wardrobe is black white gray and navy blue <laughs> Yeah, I have a uniform during the week. I have these um, nicer black T-shirts, a couple of V-necks and a couple of crew necks, and then some Lulu pants. And then the decision fatigue I run in is pairing the socks and the shoes because the socks are bold colors and the shoes are bold colors. See? Yeah, that's this is the decision. Seriously, get a copy of Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. You will love it. Oh, it, yeah. It's yes. such a good book. So what I'll probably need to do is set out a pair of socks and shoes that are my tired brain shoes that it's like, these will just go with whatever. Default, (laughs) right? This is my default. I don't need to think about it. I'm just going to put them on. But but this, I mean, and it seems some of this stuff can feel frivolous, but when you dry, when organizations are trying to dive into, um, building a relationship with the people they work, who buy from them, building relationships with people they work for. All of this, all of these sorts of little decisions, this little, the the small stuff 
is gets gets a lot of short shift in people. And there's an article in my book where I say, you know, sweat the small stuff because we don't remember the big things. Right? Nobody ever said, I'm never shopping at XYZ company again because I hate their strategy. Like, <laughs> it doesn't happen, right? I'm not going to shop there because when I was there, they were rude to me or they got my coffee wrong or I bought something and it fell apart five minutes later or it didn't work in the first place or any number of those. That's why I'm not going back. And, and those things going wrong are the, are the result of a whole bunch of small things not happening the way they should because somewhere along the line, somebody didn't actually connect the dots for people about what mattered and what was important and what we cared about, like what mattered most. Yeah, um, I remember a commercial from a bank and the, the employee that was on there that was the, the voiceover or the face of it, hmm. he said, we don't process 90 billion or 90 million checks 90 million dollars worth of checks in one day perfectly we process one check perfectly 90 million times or whatever it was yeah, exactly and it was focus on the smallest possible thing and do that well and then move on to the next thing yeah and 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 understand what that unit is mm -hmm. and and build that into up build that up and out in your processes, in people's mindset, in how you know, in how you do things, in what's most important, all the way up. So it's almost like the people have um, this sense of. I think the other article. There's two articles in my book about this. One's called "Sweat the Small Stuff." The other one's called um, "The Little Things Are the Big Things," and it's the same. It's the same basic message that they have a different, slightly different, um, different approach, and stories attached to them, but. But it all, like, we we get, and part of the reason why we get hijacked into the big stuff is because, really, what's more fun than sitting around with a bunch of people for a day, like, brainstorming the blue sky, like, out of it? It's, it's great fun, <laughs> right? You feel smart and it's great and everybody's throwing ideas around. And, and then compare that with literally sitting down and working out the nitty gritty of your, of your organization's logistics process so that when you tell people that they are going to get a package in three days, it arrives in three days. Okay. And yes, the, the first one. Um, yeah. Occasionally that's necessary and you've got to do that. The second one, if you don't do that, your business will fail. I've cautioned other entrepreneurs to not fall into the, the fun, sexy trap. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I call that the, the vehicle wraps or the tent tops or the, mm -hmm. uh, the brand logo to apparel that you wear. It's like, go mm -hmm. back and work on your infrastructure, your yeah. shipping processes, the things yeah. that are boring and tedious. And then I would also <clears throat> have them break that down Say what's your what's your unit cost for selling something? All right, let's say it's thirty dollars, and you make fifty percent profit, and you buy you have your vehicle wrapped for that's like three thousand dollars. Like how many of thing X do you have to sell to pay for that? I'm not saying you don't have marketing expenses and you don't spend money on things like that, advertising, but be smart about it. Like how 
you know, when's the last time you saw a vehicle in traffic? You're like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to buy that. from them. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get online and I'm going to purchase whatever the hell they have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, just not. And, and this is like, you call it the fun, sexy stuff. I call it the bright, shiny objects. Perfect. Right. And it's the same. It's the same. We're talking about the same stuff. Do the unheroic work. Like, literally just do yes. the friggin' unheroic work and, and do it in an, look at it as extraordinary that you have to do. Chop wood, carry water. Yeah. Chop wood, carry water. Um, just approach the most mundane, frustrating, repetitive task that you have to do as if it is the most important thing you need to do and do it with that mindset. Right. Um, there's a, uh, I think the article I wrote, I sent out to my subscribe, my email list. The last article was, um, was, Put, put play to work. Um, and there's some really good science on the on how useful that can be to transform how people approach this sort of more mundane everyday tasks. And if you can find a way to put a bit of play in it, um, because, because people will play a video game doing the most mundane, crazy, boring things <laughs> for hours, literally, at absence of sleep, and yet you ask them to do something that's comparable in their job and they're just, yeah, I don't think so. That's kind of a bit boring. What? How come? <laughs> and, and, there's, and, and there's an interest, there's a great um, Hidden Brain had a whole podcast on this. And one of the things that comes back on it is, is the sense of achievement that you get. So when you play a game and you're, yes, you're doing a boring thing, but you get a reward. You, you achieve something, you level up, you whatever it is. So how can you bring that into some of this more unheroic work in a way that, again, ties back to what's important to you? Like it's no good just throwing stuff at stuff willy-nilly, but there are ways to bring more of a sense of importance, more of a sense of presence to those, to those tasks. Um, and your entrepreneurs are stuck in the, you know, the bright, you say the fun, sexy stuff, it's, it's, almost presented irresistibly and not helped by the fact that people talk about a brand as something you create, right? So here, let us create your brand for you. To which I say to agencies like, no, just no. (laughs) You can can help interpret what's important to us in a way that people out in the marketplace can receive and hear and, and be attracted to. You're not helping us create anything. We're the ones doing the work. It's the result of like the value in that that gets held in that thing over time is a result of our work, of everything that we're doing, of those unheroic actions and decisions done on repeat, like that one check cashed 90,000 times correctly. Mm -hmm. That's... They're, they're the people that are achieving the brand, not you guys sitting out there coming up with whatever it is. It's just, that you're just, you're just playing at the markers and that's fine. And it's useful and it's helpful and it's necessary, but it's, it's let's, let's, let's get serious. It's marketing and that's great. And it's useful and it's helpful and it's necessary, but it ain't brand. Well, I'm going back to your book, uh, which I have, have and 
have been thoroughly enjoying. Um, it's, <laughs> I think it's going to be mandatory reading for anybody that <laughs> it, it's, it's so practical and so common sense and common sense is not so common. And um, you talked about the unheroic work was writing the book tedious for you. How did, and I'm guessing I'm asking more tactical or strategic questions. Yeah. Um, how was it? And do you have, what was your process to actually execute this and get it completed? That's a, it's a bit of a story to this, right? Because I, when I wrote it, uh, or when I, I'll say I put it together, because because it got written over a decade, really. Um, so not um, I shouldn't say um. Please stop me if I say um. I hate it when I do that. Uh, it's so people okay. gave me. So people, so people have had said to me, ah, the things that you just said. It's really practical. Write a book. I don't want to write a book. I really didn't want to write a book. And then a good friend, I was sitting having coffee with a good friend and he said, what are you talking about? You've been writing a book for the last 10 years. And that was because I was writing a weekly uh, column for um, an online business magazine here in Australia. And I was uh, literally every week for 11 years, I wrote an article for them on these topics. And so I had the I had the raw material. I had the book. I just I needed to figure out a way to pack to pull it together so that it was coherent, so people could access it. So it wasn't a, it was an anthology, but not a bunch of stuff just shoved between two covers. So that was really where I looked at what is the sort of the theme, the through line that I want to the story that I want to tell with this content, and um, and and how do I how do I structure that in a way that people can dive in and out of it? So one of the things that hopefully is nice about the book is you can pick it up and you can read it from cover to cover and, and you'll get a sense of a flow from this, from the different, from topic to topic to topic that comprises and that goes into how in my worldview, you achieve a brand. Or you can just pick it up and open that at any point at any particular article and read it and walk away with something that you can use and think about. And that was really the goal um, to try and capture and package that so that if I get, like I think you and I talked about, so if I get hit by a bus, <laughs> the stuff that I've been working on for a couple of decades just doesn't disappear into the ground with me. And, and so the process was very, was not difficult at all. The discipline of writing every week of writing the That's probably the better question is how did you approach the discipline every yeah. week? Yeah, that was, that was deadlines are friggin' fantastic, right? Because <laughs> if you've got a deadline and I know a lot of people rack and stack their articles. There were people who were other people who were writing articles for them and they say, yeah, no, I write five at a time. And then it's like, no, I actually do way better if I have that discipline. I was, I was a, a swimmer when I was, in my youth, a competitive swimmer. And so I'm used to get up every morning, go and swim 10, go and swim 10 kilometers. <laughs> that, that rhythm, that discipline of that rhythm was really worked for me. So I had a schedule where I start towards the end of the week before the article was due. I'd, I'd figure out what topic I wanted to use. And it was usually uh, influenced or the spark came from something that had happened in mm. that week, a lot of the time. 
And then I'd marry that up with what part of my thinking and framework that these days are called the formula that it, that it synced with. And then I'd sit down and just write it and send it off to the editors and it'd get published and then rinse, repeat the next week. And it was just the rhythm that I got into. And, and it is true what they say. You, writing is, the act of writing is, is not necessarily fun, although sometimes you just get in that. Some weeks it took five minutes. No, I'm kidding. It didn't ever take five minutes. But some weeks it took an hour. Some weeks it took half a day. <laughs> just depending on where my mindset was at, the clearer I was about what I wanted to say, the easier it was to write. No surprise there. Um, and then and then once I pulled the book together and I sent it off to a bunch of people who I trusted to get their take on whether it hung together in the way I wanted it to, got an editor to properly edit it. So it's not, it's actually been through multiple editing rounds because it was edited first as articles. And then I rewrote a lot of the content and updated it for the book. And then we got it together and put it out in the world. And it's been out there now for a few couple of years and in, Sometime in the next, I was hoping to get it before Christmas, but I'm not sure it will. I don't know when this is going to air. But by the time it airs, in all likelihood, there will be a paperback version available as well. <clears throat> I can't recommend it highly enough. And I, I, like most of these conversations and most of these assets and knowledge that's in this book, I wish it had landed on me years ago. <laughs> But this will be one of those that is going to make me look and sound and be way smarter than I am. <laughs> well, that that is just the nicest thing to say. Thank you. Uh, I'll with for the listeners. I'll give them the I'll give them the highlight. Right, because yes. the whole book can be pretty much summed up in in the formula that um, the principle that I have pulled together that summarizes my brand worldview of your purpose values. And you use them to make promises that you can keep and then keep those promises in the experience that you deliver and your result, and you will achieve a brand result that accumulates value over time. That's it. That's the secret. <laughs> Well, I'm going to put it to the test in all the uh, responsibilities and functions and everything I'm involved in. <clears throat> and it, I, I need to not be careful about how I say this. It's that I agree with everything I've read in there, not because I'm experienced and not because I'm that smart or because I don't recognize that. It's like, this is just, it's classic and it's timeless and there's zero pretension behind it. And it's not, um, it's not talking down. It's just, I read this and it's like, oh yeah. Okay. Gravity, um, sunrise, sunset. Like mm -hmm. there's an elegance in the simplicity. And I say simplicity with the absolute utmost respect and compliment that I possibly mm. can, because it's very easy to create something convoluted. It's very, very hard to create something simple and functional. Oh, good. 
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's it's I'll take your it. book is good. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll absolutely take it as the highest compliment. So thank you. Well, Michelle, it's been a, a wonderful conversation, and uh, I'm so thankful to have met you. And it will be one of my uh, life's mission to get you on Debbie Millman's podcast. <laughs> oh, I would, I would love it, and whatever I can do to help that mission, I'm, I'm in. Um, and just, it's been a guess. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and thanks for your generosity in having me on and giving me so much time to wax lyrical about the stuff. And I hope that there is some pieces in there that people can take and use because you're right. There's a lot of complexity out there, and it's, it's not as hard. It's both not as hard as people think and much harder than people think to do this stuff. Well, <laughs> you're, you're one guest, Michelle, where I would love to take a cross country drive and start <laughs> either in Australia or the U S I drive one end of the country to the other and have just uninterrupted your windshield time to deconstruct and talk about these concepts, because I think it would just be, incredibly delightful and insightful and there'd just be so many times i would just look out the window and be like yeah (laughs) any anytime anytime i'm in the u.s and um we'll 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 absolutely make time not to drive across the country but certainly to catch up and the invitations if you're ever out here in australia please um we would be my pleasure to get together and show you some of my beautiful country here. Now I live here again. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. You're an absolute delight. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. And I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening.